Today's uh, scripture reading on this Advent Sunday is the 72nd Psalm. Let us read the word of God. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in, the, in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. In the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruits be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sam. Good morning, Lake Baldwin Church. In 2017, I uh, went on a missions trip to Cuba, and it was a wonderful, sweet experience. But at the same time, uh, it was very upsetting. Let me explain. It was wonderful and sweet because we were developing a relationship with a pastor uh, and his congregation over there. We were traveling over there. We were bringing gifts and supplies, medical supplies, and whatnot, and we wanted to spend the time with them, getting to know them, uh, getting to know their context, uh, both encouraging them, but also receiving encouragement from them and learning how do they do ministry over there in Cuba. And so it was a wonderful time, a sweet time to develop these relationships, but it was also very upsetting. You know, I remember we were traveling over there with a Cuban pastor who lives in Florida. Uh, and I remember so distinctly what it was like landing at the airport. 
You know, this pastor was coming over. He, too, wanted to bring gifts. He, he had a whole suitcase full of gifts and supplies, things that were hard to get. He wanted to bless his family there. And when we landed in Cuba, I remember going through customs, and I was nervous. I was wondering, you know, would they question us? Why were we here? Were we going to preach the gospel openly? Uh, would they take and confiscate the supplies that we were bringing? And I remember going through customs. It was like we didn't even exist. We just sailed right through. They barely even looked up and like, go ahead, go ahead. So we went and left, and we were outside the airport. We were waiting for our pastor friend, Cuban National. And we waited, and we waited hour upon hour, four hours, five hours. The end of the day came, and he finally emerged. And this pastor was livid. He was livid. He was so angry. They had badgered him. They had questioned him. They had, they had made him feel super uncomfortable. They, they took all of the things he was bringing for his family. He was livid. I remember him saying, this is how Cuba treats its own people. How Cuba treats its own people. You can learn a lot about a country and its ruler by looking at how it treats its people. You know, we, we, over that course of that week, we began to experience a little bit of what it was like to live as a Cuban. You know, I remember understanding the rationing, the food rationing that would go on there. You and I, we would just go out and we, could, we can eat anything we want here in America. We have access to anything we want. But you can't just do that in Cuba. You, don't, you can't just say, I'm going to have a steak dinner tonight and make it happen. And I remember one of the evenings, the ice cream that we were eating was gotten on the black market. You can't just have ice cream every night like some of us do, right? The people there in that country were not flourishing. They were not flourishing. You can learn a lot about a ruler by looking at how the people are treated. As we come to our passage today. As we look at Psalm 72, we're going to look at God's kingdom through the lens of a prayer. And in this prayer, you're going to see three petitions, three asks. And these three asks are for justice and righteousness, an ask for an eternal, endless reign, and an ask for universal Dominion, And as we look at these petitions for this king, we're going to learn about the king's kingdom. But as we look at the character of the king's kingdom, we're going to look and understand and learn about the king of this kingdom. You know, uh, Psalm 72, the subtitle of it is Of Solomon. And it ascribes the authorship of the psalm to Solomon. But zoom down to verse 20. It says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now, this is not a contradiction. If you're, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that the Psalms, the book of Psalms, is broken up actually into five books. And Psalm 72 is the last of book two. And so verse 20 is really saying that most of these Psalms were written by David, so it's not a contradiction. 
But this psalm is a prayer. It's a prayer of Solomon. We don't know, actually. Is this, is this a prayer that he prayed for his own kingship? Is it a prayer he prayed for his son? Is it a prayer that the kings of Israel prayed over as they were coronated? We don't know. But as we unpack this psalm, we're going to see that this prayer is only fulfilled in one king, one coming king, and that is King Jesus. Let's look at that first petition. It's a petition for justice and righteousness. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. This is a wonderful prayer for any ruler, for any king. Why is that? We all want our rulers to maintain and administer justice and righteousness. We want the king to enforce rules and law and for there to be order, for there to be equity. So this is a wonderful prayer for any king. But I want you to note that this petition is not just for any sort of justice or righteousness. Look with me. It is for the king to have God's justice, God's righteousness. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. You know, governments, parliaments, Congress, rulers, they're always struggling. They're always struggling to define justice and righteousness. And, to, and what does it look like to treat people with equity and fairly? The standard for justice and righteousness. The foundation for every rule of justice and righteousness resides in the fact that God is the just and righteous one. He is the absolute standard. And so this prayer for the king is actually a great prayer that we ought to be praying for our rulers, even for our own president. Give our president your justice your righteousness. Isn't that what we long for? One of the key jobs of any ruler having justice and righteousness is to judge the people. See that in verse 2. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. If you're a fan of the NFL, maybe last Sunday, like me, you were on the couch watching the game between the Bills and the Chiefs. Anybody watch that game? A couple of you guys did. You know what happened. There was one minute left in the game, and the Chiefs were behind. They needed to score a touchdown to win. And with one minute left, Mahomes, he's dropping back, and he zings the ball. And, and Kelsey, the tight end, catches the ball, and he's running for the end zone, but he can't get there, and he's about to get tackled. And what does he do? He laterals the ball to Tony, and Tony is all by himself on the other side of the field. He catches the ball, runs, scores the winning touchdown. But no, if you saw the game, you know what happens. Flag. A flag was thrown. Why? Offensive offsides. A penalty that is rarely, rarely thrown. I think in, in a couple years ago, it was only two times, and last year, maybe three or four times. A penalty that changed the game. I mean, this past week, you know, the pundits were in an uproar about it. Was it just? Well, actually, if you look at the footage, his foot was over the line. But was it fair? Was it fair for the, the refs to intervene with a rule that is rarely called? You guys decide. You guys decide. Whatever you think. 
We want justice. We want righteousness. Whether it's our NFL refs, whether it is Congress, we want justice. We want righteousness. We care deeply as a people about that. And the foundation for any ruler starts with justice and righteousness. And here is the plea. Here is the petition. Give your king your justice and your righteousness. But what does it look like? Look with me at verses three and four. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. I want you to see the connection between justice and righteousness and the prosperity of people. Look at the parallel that is being set up in that first verse. Mountains bear prosperity and the hills in righteousness. There is a strong connection for God between his justice and righteousness and his care of the poor. And these are not just any poor and needy. If you look back at verse 2, they are his poor, his poor. They are God's poor. They are his to defend, his to care for. And any government that rules with justice and righteousness and does not have thought or care for the poor is not ruling with God's justice and God's righteousness. And as we look at this petition, no king of Israel would fulfill this. In fact, as we look at human history, no ruler on planet Earth comes close to fulfilling this petition. And it tells us much about the coming king. He's a king who would say in Matthew 25, as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. If this is the character of our king, our king Jesus, and we are his kingdom, what sort of people ought we to be? John Calvin says it this way, we must make the invisible kingdom visible in our midst. If we want people to know King Jesus, we need to give them a taste of his kingdom to see just what kind of king he is. You may know that our church is engaged in Mercy Ministry in the city. We're engaged in Commission 127, Elevate Orlando, Jobs Partnership, 306 Foundation, and many others. We support these financially. So when you guys give, we give to them. But I want to encourage you at the personal level. What would it look like for you What would it look like for your family? What would it look like for your small group to engage in the poor, in the needy, in the defenseless? You know, I think the greatest apologetic for our age, for our culture, is for us actually to live out the words that we say. To bring the gospel with our deeds, not just with our words and with our arguments. To put on flesh to incarnate the good news. To be the good news to someone else who is suffering. And we need each other to do this. Because it's hard. 
It's hard. I need help doing this. I need encouragement. I need inspiration. I need accountability. We need to do this together. So as we look towards 2024, let me encourage you. First of all, if you're not in a community that's helping you do this, find that community. And secondly, this, this goes out to our small groups, our community groups. Let me encourage you. Find a way to engage in good news for the city. Find a way to do this together. Maybe give up one of your meetings per quarter or twice a year and find a way to engage in bringing good news to our city. This is the petition for the king, for the ruler. Justice and righteousness. And this is what it looks like. Let's look at the second petition. It's for an endless reign. Verse 5, may they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. Now as we look at this verse, it should become very clear that this is no ordinary king that we are praying for. This is no ordinary king because his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It's while the sun endures and as long as the moon and throughout all generations forever. The longest reigning king in Israel was a mere 55 years, Manasseh. And of the kings and rulers of the earth, only their lifetime. But we're praying for a king to have a reign that will last forever. This is the reign of a coming king, a kingdom that will never end. When they, the angel Gabriel came to Mary before Jesus was born, this is what he said to her. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and we call the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. And is of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is that greater son of David, even that greater son of Solomon who wrote this prayer. He is the coming king whose kingdom will never end. His reign will never cease. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty glad that presidents in America have term limits. And I'm not necessarily referring about to the current president, but it's a good thing. Because when you think about rulers on earth who have ultimate power and have no limit to their reign, it seems that endless reign equals endless corruption. Endless reign leading to endless corruption. But this king that we're looking at in the scriptures here, he is one who will reign much differently. Look with me at verse 6. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass like showers that water the earth. This is a simile. He is like the rain. He is like showers. In other words, this king, he is a king who is the actual source of health, of flourishing, of prospering, of vitality for his people. He's the one that causes new growth. And when you look at verse 7, more than that, what is his kingdom characterized by? It is characterized by peace abounding. This is the kingdom of the coming king. 
Sadly, that's not the experience that I had in Cuba. Sadly, this is not the experience we have here in America, or we see it in any nation on planet Earth. Maybe this is why Solomon was praying so fervently and wrote it down, his desire, his ache for that king that would one day come and bring a kingdom that was, would flourish. The needy and the poor would flourish and that peace would abound. And as we look upon our own situation here, where there is a lack of peace, where the poor are not flourishing, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy for us to devote our energy into arguments and debates, and there's value in that. But I want us to consider another approach, and that is this, to seek the prosperity, to seek the flourishing of our city, to seek the prosperity, to seek the flourishing of Orlando, where God has placed us. How can we help the poor and the needy and the broken in Orlando prosper and flourish? And again, it's that thing that John Calvin said, we must make the invisible kingdom of God visible in our midst. Jeremiah had a similar word for the people of Israel living in exile in Babylon. And in Babylon, they were in a hostile, secular, pagan culture. Similar to ours. This is what the prophet says. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare of Orlando because that's where God has us. You may know that our vision is this, transformed by the grace of Christ and compelled by his love. Our vision is to be a flourishing community, marked by love for God and for our neighbor. We desire, we look into the future and want a better future. We want our community to flourish. How does it flourish? It's marked by love for God and love for our neighbor. Later on in our vision, it unpacks that. What does that look like? What does that good news for the city look like? It looks like serving the poor and the needy around us. That's part of the vision. That's part of who we are at Lake Baldwin Church. Let's look at that last petition now. It's a petition for universal dominion, starting in verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a coming king who is going to rule over all nations, but he's not only going to rule over all He is a king who is coming who is going to unite all nations. He's going to unite all peoples. No longer are we talking about a king who is only solely ruling over Israel. He's a king who is ruling over the Gentiles as well. When you look in verses 9 and 10, you see the desert tribes, the kings of Tarshish in the coastland, the kings of Sheba and Seba. These are the Gentiles. He is king over them. And what are they doing in those verses? They're bringing tribute to the king. They're bringing gifts to the king. And we get, we, at Christmas time, we get a hint of that. The Magi bringing their gifts to Jesus. But we see this ultimately in his glorious fulfillment in Revelation 
21, where the nations, all the nations, all tribes, all tongues, all peoples, bringing their glory and their honor into King Jesus. These nations, these Gentile nations, they have not been conquered. They have not been compelled. They have not been manipulated. They have not been forced to worship this king, but they have been wooed and attractive. And how is that? What would compel them to bring gifts to worship? Look with me in verses 12 through 14. What kind of king is this for? He delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. No, they are not conquered. No, they are not compelled. They are wooed. They are drawn in by the heart of this coming king. When we look at the kings and rulers of this earth, guess what? They don't see the poor. They don't recognize the poor. They overlook the poor. Why is that? The poor, they, they can't contribute. We can't tax them. They have nothing to offer, nothing to bring. But our king is not like the kings of this earth. Psalm 72 is not about a powerful, political, earthly king. But it's about a coming king who is gentle and lowly. A king who would give up the riches of heaven and become poor. A king who knew a throne of endless glory and would trade it for a, a cradle in the dirt. A king who would become poor and weak and needy and defenseless as a babe in a manger. A king whose heart is drawn, drawn to the poor, drawn to the needy, because scripture says they are precious to him. And he's a king who knows what it's like to walk in their shoes. If you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings trilogy, at the end of that trilogy in the movie, I don't think it's in the book actually, the wonderful scene, King Aragorn, he's conquered everything, Evil's done with, and Gandalf is about to coronate him as the king of men. And he puts the crown on his head and says, now come the days of the king. And the king gets up and he's making his way among the people and he comes up to the four lowly hobbits. Frodo and Sam and Mary and Pippin. And what do they do? As any subject of this great king, what do they do? They bow to King Aragorn. You remember the scene? What does Aragorn say? He's like, no. My friends, you bow to no one. You bow to no one. And then King Aragorn, what does he do? He gets down and he bows to them. And everyone in the kingdom bows down to the meek, to the lowly to the mostly unseen hobbits. Isn't that the message 
of Christmas, that the king of heaven would come down. He would stoop low. He would bend low. He would become one of us. And as Neville Rome would famously say, he would become small. He would become small. And he would woo us, attract us with his heart of compassion and love for us. A king who would stoop low for his people who are precious in his sight. A king, as Jim reminded us last week, who is enthralled with you, his bride. This is the king of the coming kingdom. If he is such a king, how should we be as his people? You may be here this morning and you're going through this Christmas season and you, you don't believe, you don't get this Christmas story. But let me ask you this. Don't you want it to be true? Don't you want such a king as this who would bend low for you? Don't you want a king like this who has never, ever graced planet Earth? Yes, we want such a king. If that describes you, if you want such a king, if you want it to be true, let me invite you, let me encourage you, be curious this Christmas and explore the coming of just such a king. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, gracious Heavenly Father, you are God that confounds the wise. What king would give up his crown and take on a crown of thorns? What king would give up a throne and take on a cross? What kind of king would love his enemies? This is the king we serve. This is the king who has come, and this is the king who is coming. This morning, we worship you. We give you all of our praise this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.